A sludge for you might not be a sludge for me. Context affects each one of us differently and each one of us is facing a different context. Hello and welcome to Grow Up, an APG Canada podcast where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and today on the show, we're catching up with Dilip Soman, Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Science and Economics at the Rotman School of Management, who will share his top five tips on how to overcome sludge, those hidden frictions that impede behavioral change. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Forsman Bodenfor for sponsoring this week's episode. As one of Canada's leading strategy departments and supporters of strategic planning, they've shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Now let's get into the show. Dilip, welcome to the show. Um, terrific if you could tell us a bit about yourself and this concept of sludge. Okay. Um, gosh, I'm going to start at the very beginning, as, as the sound of music tells us, which is I'm an engineer by training, and then eventually I found my way into studying uh, business, had a job in advertising and sales, and then ended up getting a PhD in something that we now call behavioral economics. Um, that was back in 1995. And so I've been in academia since, but I'm a slightly different kind of an academic than the average in the sense that I like to work a lot with industry and with government. My, my research is motivated by observations around me. They're motivated by practical problems that folks like yourself and, and uh, folks in policy and welfare face. Um, and so I've actually spent the last 20, 25 years or so uh, studying what I call choice architecture. Now, Michelle, I, I know you're going to ask me what the hell is choice architecture. So I'm going to jump straight into it. And that's going to lead us into something called nudge and then something called sludge. Um, so, so here's a simple proposition. We know that people's decisions, uh, be they your customers, your employees, any stakeholders, we know that decisions depend on the context in which those decisions are made, right? So, so think about uh, something as simple as making a decision uh, in the physical world versus online. We know those things are different. You could have the same exact choice that you give people, but people are going to decide differently. Or making the same decision under time pressure versus not, or doing it on a weekday versus weekend uh, where you have more time to think about it, or whether whether you're making it alone or in the presence of other people, we know all these things matter. We know the, the way in which a menu in a restaurant, for example, is structured, changes what people order. Um, and, and so if we know that these things matter, could we actually use the environment? Could we create a context to steer people towards the kind of decision we want them to make? So let me give you a couple of quick uh, simple examples. Uh, we know now from research uh, about something called the compromise effect, the idea that if you give people three options that, let's say, increase in price and quality, people tend to pick the one in the middle. And they do that because of, you know, let's call it a Goldilocks effect. People don't want, they don't want the worst. They don't want the best, perhaps. Uh, the one in the middle sounds like the right compromise. So uh, the medium cup of coffee is the most popular cup of coffee in any coffee shop or Octane 91 uh, is a fairly popular brand or, or, or version of petrol because it's not as expensive as 94 and it's not as cheap as 87. Um, so if we know that that's the case, uh, then one interesting tactic for selling something is to surround it by something that's cheaper, 
uh, and of a lower quality versus another one that's more expensive and a higher quality. Uh, and that will push people towards the one in the middle. That's an example of choice architecture, right? Or um, think about uh, the fact we know that when people are asked to opt in versus opt out, uh, we know there's a significant difference in the number of people doing stuff. So organ donation, if you want people to donate organs, you can either go to them, convince them, hand them a bunch of forms, make them go to Service Ontario, uh, and then they become organ donors. Uh, or you could tell them, hey, I'm going to assume that you'll be an organ donor. But if you don't want to donate organs, here's a bunch of forms, go to Service Ontario, same process in reverse. We know that there are more people who will consent in the second case, because we know people are lazy, right? So again, choice architecture, right? I've taken the same question. I've expressed it differently. And there was a landmark book that came out in 2008. The book was called Nudge. Uh, it was written by Richard Taylor and Cass Sunstein. And they made the point that we could actually use uh, architecture of choice. So much like an architect in the physical world designs spaces, you as a, as a business, you as a government, you as a policymaker can design the information environment. You can design a process for engaging with the customer um, that will nudge them towards making the, the purchase you want them to make. And so that was the idea of nudge, making it easy for people to choose by creating the right, uh, the right environment. Right? So I'm going to pause there for a moment and say, well, okay, uh, if you can make it easy and if we know that context matters, you could also make it difficult, right? Uh, and I actually had an experience like that recently, well, about a year ago. I was on, a, on an online website buying books and, uh, you know, I ended up clicking a button that I shouldn't have clicked or I actually ended up unclicking, not unclicking a button that I should have unclicked. Um, and I started receiving a subscription to a newspaper that I didn't want to read. So these newspapers keep showing up and I'm saying, you know, it, it took me a while to figure out what had happened. Uh, and so I said, I'm going to cancel this. Um, and so I emailed the editorial office or the sales office and they said, well, since you live in Canada and this is a U.S. based operation, uh, we can't handle things through a phone call. Um, several web visits, several other phone calls later, I learned that I had to actually write a letter, like a Canada Post letter, uh, send it to New York. They would then send me a form, which I had to fill. And by the time this whole process was done, it was almost the whole year had gone. Um, that sludge, right? So they made it easy for me to buy. They made it really difficult for me to cancel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I imagine that was somewhat by design, obviously. I, I suspect so. I suspect that was some, uh, somewhat by design. Now, m m mind you, Michelle, I also want to make the point that, you know, we call this friction. So, I mean, sludge is sort of a nice uh, catch-all term to talk about what it is, but it's really friction in a process, right? Uh, and I do want to emphasize that not all friction is bad. So, for example, uh, let's imagine that you and a business partner or you and a spouse uh, you know, you disagreed on something and you were really angry with the other person. Uh, you do not want an Amazon one-click button to get divorced at that stage. I mean, that's not good. Okay? Uh, and, and so sometimes there are situations when we want customers to stop and think. We want customers to reflect. We want customers to become more vigilant. Consumption, right? Um, imagine eating 
popcorn, right? You go to you know, back back in the days when we used to be in the theaters, you would get this like really large bucket of popcorn, and people would finish it. Uh, but if you ask them, well, imagine that instead of that big bucket of popcorn, you had the same quantity of popcorn, let's say in six or six or seven smaller bags. Do you think you'd eat as much? Um, and the answer is no. Uh, and the answer is no because be introduced to friction at the end of each bag. People now have to think about whether they want to eat another bag and they'll probably kick in and become vigilant and say, yeah, maybe not. Maybe I've had enough. Right? With a bucket, you don't have that friction. Um, and so sometimes you want friction. right? So it's not always the case that friction is bad. There are cases when friction is good. Well, I mean, I, first of all, like just kind of backing up to your initial introduction, I didn't realize that you had worked in advertising. So it feels like it even more, you know, perfectly placed uh, to, to, you know, I kind of give it advice as to, well, maybe there are some times, as you said, we want to overcome sludge, but maybe yeah. there are times where, you know, it's, it's not such a bad thing. Um, right. I also think that it's, it's really a, it's terrific that you bring up choice architecture. Cause I think a lot of us, you know, fall victim to, we forget about the fact that yes, messaging and marketing exists in a context and we will sometimes it's much easier to design a brand positioning or come up with messaging in isolation. And, you know, yes, we have a media plan and we'll do our consumer journeys and that, but we don't always think about where and how these messages or positionings are going to live and breathe. Well, th this is the thing, right, Michelle? I mean, I think like market research is one classic example where the number of times you have research that shows something and then you go to market and you don't see that something, uh, I, I'm sure we can all relate to that. It's because of the context. I mean, you know, we, we always kind of create market research plans that essentially strip the context because we think it'll become more generalizable. Uh, in fact, it becomes not applicable to anything. And, and I think that's the one thing we do to uh, then fall, uh, fall to uh, you know, uh, 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 fall as a victim too. So, uh, really important to watch out for context. Okay, great. So, are you gonna? I'm curious now. Are you gonna share your five tips on overcoming it or leveraging it to you know when it's applicable? What What are you gonna take? Yeah. So uh, let's let's talk about five general principles, if you will. And okay. I think uh, you know because it is so context dependent. I do want to uh, encourage each one of your listeners to think about which way the arrow goes in your organization. Do you want, do you have problems with your customers because they aren't thinking enough or do you have problems because things are too difficult for them? So depending on which one your situation is, if it seems like there are a bunch of people who are trying to do stuff, but can't do it, uh, then you need to reduce the sludge. If on the other hand, you have trigger happy people who are doing things and you say, hang on, I wish they slowed down, uh, then you want to introduce friction. Right? So I think it's really important to, to think about that. So I, I'd say my first, my first tip would be to really simplify processes. Uh, and obviously not always. Okay. So again, it kind of depends on what sort of problem you're trying to solve. Um, but when I talk about simplifying processes, I really mean simplifying from an engineering perspective. So let me give you a super quick example. A project in which I send out a letter again, back in the days in which we used to send letters, where people had to respond by filling up a form and attaching some paperwork. Um, and I see the response rates are only 10%. Uh, the way most people would frame this problem is that it's a problem of low response rates. It's like a one problem. But if you start looking at it from a process perspective, there's a lot of things that need to happen for you to get a response, right? 
the person should receive a letter. It turns out about 6% of letters never reach their destination. Uh, they should open the letter. Turns out about 40% of people don't open letters at all, especially letters that come in standard brown envelopes. It looks like junk mail. Um, then people need to read it, understand it, fill up the form, complete whatever other stuff is needed, make photocopies, find an envelope, find a stamp, have the time to put it in the mailbox. Right? It's not a one-stage process. Every time you decompose that, that process, you realize that each of these things is an opportunity for people to drop out. And we don't think about it that way, right? And, and so I think really having the discipline to map out in detail how many steps you have. Uh, you know, back in the days, we used to have this lovely device called the Palm Pilot. Uh, I guess the grandparent of, uh, of our smartphones. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, it's even pre, like you're the one with the stylus. There was someone at Palm Pilot whose job was to ensure that the customer can get to any screen in less than three clicks of the stylus. And I think we need, a, we need someone with that job in all of our organizations. Anything that's customer-facing, right? can we make it really easy? And so, so I think that's one. Like processes, uh, processes actually make a big difference. Um, the second tip has to do with communication. So oftentimes in our eagerness to tell people everything we think is good for them, we tell them too much. Right. Uh, so I'll give an example of uh, mental health. I've been doing some work in this area. Um, and if you actually think about mental health, we know from research that people who are suffering from mental health issues don't have the cognitive bandwidth to process information. So these are people to whom you should be giving precisely small but important pieces of information. Uh, Yet we try and do the opposite. We try and tell them, you know, it's like six places you can go to and three therapies, and that's not what they want to hear, right? So I think you want to think about the context in which are we giving the right quantity of information? Is it delivered in the right way and delivered at the right time, right? Sometimes it makes sense to drip information over time because if you give people too much information ahead of time, they retreat, right? So communication is the other sort of big driver of, of sludge. The third thing, which we don't think about too much, uh, is something that I'm going to call emotional spotlight. And again, I'll best illustrate that with an example. Um, so this is an example from a slightly different domain. It's in the area of uh, cash transfer programs, government welfare programs. Uh, government puts out a lot of these welfare programs where, let's say, uh, eligible low-income citizens can go to a bank and sign up or a credit union, uh, and they actually get support, uh, cash from the government, uh, for all kinds of social things like, you know, educating their children or, uh, you know, updating your, uh, upgrading your home or stuff like that, right? Now it, now, it turns out in one particular program, uh, which was launched about 10 years ago here in Canada, uh, the take-up rate was about 14%, one four. Right? So 14%, only 14% of eligible low-income Canadians who are essentially getting up to $2,000 of, I'm going to call it free money, uh, to educate their children, only 14% took it. Um, and the question is why? And you know, whenever you go into a strategy session, I think the first thing that jumps to mind is people say, well, you know, maybe they didn't know about it. Uh, so we spend millions of dollars with, in promotion campaigns. And that pushes the needle from 14 to 14 and a half. 
right? Um, and it turns out it wasn't the knowledge. It wasn't that, right? It was the emotional spotlight. So a lot of the people who are eligible from, for this were like, you know, recent immigrants. They come from, from a proud culture. Uh, they don't want to be seen in a place where everybody around them knows that they are receiving welfare. And it was the fear of that that prevented them from going, not the lack of awareness, right? And so oftentimes we put emotional spotlights on people which they are looking to avoid. We've seen that this is an important cause in in India, for example, where similar idea, um, back in the olden days, take-up rates for a lot of welfare programs were low. Ever since they moved to direct deposit and electronic identity, now that you don't need to be in a special line, to get welfare and the money comes silently into your bank account, um, take-up rates have gone up, right? So always, always, I think, watch out for uh, for emotional spotlights. We, we, this is a hard one because, you know, it's really hard to empathize with people from different cultures or different financial situations. Um, and I remember being in the room when these programs were being designed and I remember somebody saying, well, it's $2,000 of free money who wouldn't take it, right? 86% wouldn't uh, because of that emotional spotlight. So I think that's that's tip number three, right? Um, tip number four, I think, goes back to the idea of empathy, which is that uh, a sludge for you might not be a sludge for me. I remember that um, context affects each one of us differently, and each one of us is facing a different context, right? So. There are some personalities who might experience friction differently from other personalities. So let me give an example of uh, something that our government did a couple of years back, which I think is like really, really great, really important, which is the Canadian Revenue Agency uh, now has an online account where all of your tax slips automatically get uploaded. So you don't need to track these pieces of paper and make photocopies anymore. They just show up there once you have that account. Uh, all very great, uh, except for the fact that uh, when do you see the value of that account? You see the value of that account when you're actually laboring through the old process, making photocopies and scanning and all of that stuff. You say, I wish there was a place like this. CRA tells you, you can do this. Uh, so you go online, you register for it, but under our privacy laws, they can't give you an access pin online. That shows up in the mail, right? So that's going to take you two weeks. Um, so in two weeks, you get you get the PIN. By that time, you filed your taxes the old way. Yeah. <laughs> it's no longer the pain point. That's gone. Uh, so oftentimes that, that PIN comes and you lose it and so on and so forth. Right? It's a big source of sludge for many people. It, it happened to me. Uh, if I'm not in the heat of the moment, if I'm not organized, then not having that PIN at that point in time is a massive source of sludge. Not so for my spouse. Right, so she's the kind of person who has a folder and a clipboard and a pin uh, pin board where stuff goes up, and you know she's on track with all of her paperwork, and uh, and so it's the same exact process which affected her and me very very differently, right? Uh, and and so I think it's a mistake for people to say that look, if I don't experience sludge, if I don't experience friction, perhaps other people don't, really important to have third-party audits and representative third-party audits. So people who are your stakeholders, your customers should be the ones auditing. 
Yeah, it's interesting because it feels like a couple things there. There, there's maybe scenario planning that you could do because it feels like right. a little bit of what you're talking about as well as timing. Like there was a point in time where that would have been really useful, but that time passed. That time has passed. Yeah, I mean, I, and, and I think timing is such a big thing that uh, most of us in marketing don't think too much about. I mean, think about privacy disclosures when you just download a new app. Uh, and then when you fire up the app for the first time, you're made to read a privacy disclosure and to agree with it, right? Uh, if I'm a behavioral scientist, that's the worst time to get anyone to read anything. Like they've just downloaded this app, they're eager to look at it, and now you make them read stuff. Like what's the likelihood that they will read it? Uh, and, and so we spend a lot of time developing the content of that disclosure, uh, but not the timing. And I think this is a mistake we often make in marketing. We focus so much on the content, but not on the timing, uh, partly because maybe sometimes the timing isn't in our control, but I think it's something we should be thinking a lot more about. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right, tip number five. Uh, uh, sludge, in my opinion, is a bit like weeds in your backyard, right? So in, in my example of the subscription, I mean, I suspect there was a deliberate uh, attempt to, to block people from unsubscribing. Uh, but oftentimes it isn't deliberate. Like it just shows up. Like nobody goes and plants weeds in your backyard. Uh, they just show up. Um, and they show up for a number of reasons, uh, you know. People's preferences change and companies don't keep up with those change preferences or context change or there's something in the environment that has changed. And so uh, I, I do think it is important for these sludge audits, if you will, to be done on an ongoing basis. Right. Um, we sort of, you know, me and my colleagues think about this as, as sort of having a sludge dashboard. I think we should have actually a, a dashboard for sludge um, so that just like when you're driving, you see the dials on your car, you should be able to see what's happening to your processes and your communication and your emotional spotlighting uh, on an ongoing basis. And it has to be one of those things which is a continuous improvement thing because oftentimes I've seen people saying, oh, we've cleaned the pipes, we've cleaned the process, now we're done. And I think that's a mistake. So I'd say it's really important to keep weeding your backyard all the time, uh, not look for special occasions. Uh, and so if I can just sum up my five things, simplify processes. Uh, Albert Einstein always said, make things as simple as you can, but not too simple. Uh, and I think that's the key there, right? Uh, sometimes you want things to be complex, but, you know, uh, think of it from an engineering perspective. How many steps? What can I reduce? Communication, um, not too much at a time. Uh, drip it at the appropriate points in time instead of giving it all at once and uh, essentially simplify the way in which it is done. Um, you know, people in marketing are great at this stuff, uh, at, the, at the visualizing piece, right? But I think it's the timing that's, that's key. Uh, emotional spotlights, always hard to see, um, always hard to empathize, but is your process in any way putting some emotional burden on the recipient? You can think about this both for external processes and internal processes, uh, simple things like promotion processes within organizations. Why do so many women, for example, not get promoted? Because they don't put their hands up and say that I want to be promoted. Men do it, right? And that's a, that's a process we've built in where in many situations, people have to come up for promotion. They have to say that I want to be considered. Uh, some genders don't want to do that because it feels like an emotional spotlight. Some ethnicities don't want to do that. And so those are the kinds of things we need to watch out for. Uh, fourth, 
Third-party audits, it's really important to have a third-party look at your uh, processes and, and watch out for sludge. And fifth, weeding. Keep doing it. It just doesn't, it's not a once-in-a-season phenomena because if you don't look at your backyard, sludge will show up. Wow. Thank you. That, that's really terrific, uh, you know, nuggets and, and ways for us to think about. I loved also what you said in the beginning about nudge and sludge, because I think actually one of the best examples that I ever saw of practically applying behavioral science to what we do was to think about the consumer journey. And, and, you know, oftentimes we're thinking about, you know, the barriers and drivers, the barriers that we need to overcome and the drivers that are going to motivate consumers to do what we want them to do. And if we reframe it as sludge and nudge and and then think more contextually about these factors that you've just identified, it feels like it would be a really useful framework. I think so. And I think at the end of the day, it's all about really thinking of under a given context, what helps, what impedes, uh, and, uh, and, and then really working through, there's no substitute for the discipline of mapping out, as you say, uh, but it has to be done for every single context differently. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dub. I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing this with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for joining today's episode of Grow Up. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, share the episode, and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Next week, we'll be catching up with John Wilkins, Managing Director of the newly formed Accenture Song, to share his top five tips on how to be a visionary leader. See you then.